Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. Today, I'm going to be talking to a guest we've had on once before, and her name will be familiar to most of you, because I'll be talking to my friend Stephanie Gray Connors. Now, many of you will know that she was one of the co-founders of the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform, where I still serve as Communications Director. And in that time, she's become one of North America's top pro-life apologists. She wrote a book uh, called Love Unleashes Life on how to have difficult conversations about abortion. She wrote a book on how to have complicated discussions about assisted suicide as well several years ago. And now her newest book is out, and it's a book that I think is really necessary for both Protestants and Catholics to read. It's called Conceived by Science, Thinking Carefully and Compassionately about Infertility and IVF. IVF, of course, being in vitro fertilization. Now, this is a controversial topic in many Christian circles, and I, and I don't particularly think that it should be, and me and Stephanie will get into the reasons why. In vitro fertilization is something that is accepted in many Christian communities and by many different churches, and that's one of the reasons I think Stephanie's very compassionate, very reasoned apologetic for why Christians should not engage in IVF is so necessary. So her book just came out. She'll share with all of you at the end of this conversation where it's available, and I'm thrilled that she took the time to have, I think, this very important conversation with me. Here's that conversation. All right, so my first question I want to ask you about this new book is you've written a book now about how to discuss abortion. You've written a book on how to discuss assisted suicide. What made you take on infertility and in vitro fertilization? Because it obviously has a relation to those topics and that you do a deep dive into ethics, but it's not necessarily the natural issue you'd see a pro-life activist gravitate towards next. I went there because my audiences were going there. Often during Q&A, when I would speak on abortion, people would say, well, what about in vitro fertilization or what's your take on frozen embryos? And so it became clear to me that this was an issue like abortion that was affecting large numbers of preborn children. And like with abortion, a lot of people are not well equipped to understand, first of all, how to think themselves on this issue, let alone to be equipped in how to communicate and articulate a pro-life response to other people. So I thought there was a need to put my apologetic skills to practice on this issue as well. I thought this book was really phenomenal. I think it's a resource that's been necessary for a long time because there's articles and there's papers out there, but there's nothing really comprehensive that kind of moves through it in a step-by-step way like you do. And it's shocking to me how many people don't understand that in vitro fertilization is wrong. So I'll give you an example from just a couple of weeks ago where I saw Dr. Callum Miller, who is a prominent British pro-life activist. He's been on this podcast. He is second to none with media debating. He's unbelievable. Love that guy. In a discussion with Bethel McGrew, who's an evangelical writer and blogger, on IVF. And they basically agreed that it wasn't intrinsically wrong. That there were ways to do it that would be ethical. And I was genuinely surprised, I think because I've, I've, you know, felt this way about IVF for as long as I can remember. I was brought up being told that it was wrong. And then as I joined the pro-life movement, I just kind of got the infrastructure that I needed to fully understand why IVF was wrong. But I am beginning to realize that my view and your view is is probably not necessarily the majority view in pro-life circles. Would you say that's true? Yeah, I would say at least in in, in Christ, broad speaking, interdenominational Christian circles, I would say that's the case. In the pro-life movement, it's mixed. But, you know, probably people would come down to that place that you mentioned Callum has come to where 
there's this argument it's not intrinsically wrong. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that to me because I know, Callum, we shared a, a platform together. So I'm like, I'm going to send him my book. <laughs> but that's why, you know, I start my book with the arguments that people like Callum and others in the pro-life movement would naturally agree with. Okay, IVF is problematic because it kills pre-born children. It freezes human beings. You know, it treats humans as commodities. But then when I get to the third part of my book, what I tackle is the argument that some pro-lifers haven't thought through. And that is addressing the idea that what if we could narrow the parameters? What if we would say, okay, you can't just make a baby for a homosexual couple or a couple that isn't married at all. You can't use sperm sellers and egg sellers. You have to use your own gametes and that of your husband or wife. But what if we just did the husband and wife and we didn't make 100 or 10 or 15 embryos, but we made three and we implanted those three or two wouldn't that be acceptable? And so what I, a lot of people who are against abortion would say, actually, yeah, in that case, maybe it's acceptable. It's not intrinsically wrong. And what I make the point in my book is, is that actually that is intrinsically wrong because it manufactures human beings and it treats a subject as though they're an object. It also involves a third party external to the marital relationship in the creation and really manufacturing of another human person. Now, one of the things I liked about this book is that although it's fundamentally an argumentative book and that you're making an argument, it doesn't read as argumentative. Like you pour a lot of heart and understanding into the book. And I think that's necessary because a lot of people get very sensitive and even upset when you bring up this issue. So there's so much emotion surrounding it that it's often difficult for people to hear what you're saying. So if you say, I think IVF is unethical, they might hear you say, okay, well, you're saying my son or daughter or niece or nephew or friend conceived through IVF shouldn't exist, which is, of course, not what you're saying. And I think one of the difficulties for pro-life activists is that with abortion, you generally have somebody getting rid of a baby they don't want. Whereas with IVF, the motivations all run in the opposite direction. They're desperately trying to achieve a pregnancy that they've been often, you know, praying fervently for. So how do you navigate getting into the argument in the first place, like laying the common ground so that those who have an emotional response to the very fact that this is a discussion and get them to, you know, guide you them into two, three, four, five chapters of your book? Yeah, that is so important. As with abortion, emotions are very involved in this debate. But as you point out, it's more difficult because to desire a child is a very ordered thing. To want a baby with your beloved is good. It's natural. And most people are, you know, likely to get married and to have children. So to not be able to achieve that very good, normal, beautiful thing is heartbreaking. And so the way we kind of wade into the debate is to, first of all, understand that someone's desire for a child is good. And to understand that the inability to achieve that good is heartbreaking. And so therefore to acknowledge that with anyone we speak with, that if someone hasn't experienced infertility, they can't fully grasp the intensity of the weight of that cross, but they can certainly understand that to be a terrible suffering and a terrible pain. And in taking a position against IVF, we're not taking a position against addressing infertility. We're taking a position against a specific method of addressing infertility. And one of the key principles that I talk about in my book 
is the end doesn't justify the means. So the good end of having a child does not justify every single method of getting there. The the most obvious one would be kidnapping. You know, if someone really wants a baby, they could break into someone's home and steal a child and raise the child as their own. Their desire for a child is good, but the means to get that child, kidnapping, everyone agrees is wrong. And so what I try to present in my book is this, this idea of, okay, the desire for the child is good, but is the means of IVF morally problematic. And then of course I I lay that out, but not to minimize the gravity of the real deep pain that people who have infertility live with, as well as there's really two emotions involved. The people that want a baby, they can't seem to get pregnant. And as you point out, the people that were conceived that way. And so to also make the point that when we say the way someone came into existence shouldn't have happened, We're not condemning the individual. We're not criticizing their dignity. In fact, everyone who is a living human being is made in God's image, has dignity, has value, is unrepeatable and irreplaceable. And so one of the points I make in the book is, look, if you look at four individuals, someone is conceived, you know, on their parents' honeymoon and it was a blissful honeymoon and they're happily married. Contrast that with an individual who's conceived as a result of a one night stand. Contrast that with an individual who's conceived like your friend and mine, Ryan Baumberger, who came to be as a result of rape. And contrast that with someone conceived by IVF. In all four cases, you have human beings. Those human beings are equal to each other. They all have dignity. But everyone agrees that if we look at those four individuals, there's not equality with the method of their conception. I think it's safe to say everyone agrees the ideal of those four is being conceived in love, being conceived in a permanent relationship where the parents of the child are have committed until death do them part and they love each other. But there isn't equality between the hookup, the rape and IVF. There is a difference in each of these. And of course, we could say that a hookup as bad as it is, is better than rape, where you have an, a party that's not consenting. So the point of those, considering those four people is to get us to say, oh, right, all four are equal. And I can make moral judgments on the four methods in which those four individuals came to be without making a condemnation of those, any one of those individuals. So I want to lay a little bit of groundwork for this next question for listeners, because most of the listeners will know that I'm Reformed and you are Catholic. And yet we're obviously agreeing pretty wholeheartedly on this issue. So in in terms of groundwork, one of the points I want to make, especially for non-Catholic listeners, is that I I think a lot of of the Protestant approaches to these ethical issues have been fundamentally flawed and that they will say things are specifically Catholic positions when they have been universal Christian positions for essentially the entire history of the church. So just to give an example on the issue of contraception, there's a lot of Catholic or a lot of Protestants who will blow off the, the, the entire discussion surrounding the ethics of contraception is a fundamentally Catholic issue, ignorant of the fact that all Christians agreed on this all the way until the Anglicans went wobbly in the 1920s. So the Reformation, for example, was not about any of these issues, and natural law is not something that was disputed by any of the key reformers. Now, I lay this out to explain why I, I think that your book is really important, and not in just in terms of, of the case that it lays out, but the way you lay it out, because your book is written for Christians, small old Orthodox Christians, I would say, of all types. You're writing for the same audience that C.S. Lewis was in Mere Christianity, Christians of goodwill who want to explore the Christian tradition and understand how it applies to their lives. And this book, I think, would be hugely persuasive 
to both. I, and I, I do want to say to any Protestant who's listening and, and, and having any feelings of suspicion about this, the, the key Protestant problem on a lot of these issues is just ignorance of our own collective tradition rather than a Protestant adopting something from the Catholic one. So explain how you navigated that in the writing of this book, because I was very impressed with the way that it was done. And we plan at the, at the pro-life organization I work for, and that you worked for as executive director for years, we plan to supply this book to our audiences. And I'm hoping that a lot of uh, Protestant churches will also distribute it. So explain how you navigated that. I appreciate you making that point. And I worked very hard to really reach a broad Christian audience. And I didn't want someone's denomination, whether they're Catholic, whether they're Baptist, whether they're Reformed, whatever, to cause them to say, oh, well, the author has a different denomination. So therefore, I need to reject this person's claim. I think if we get back to the Christian understanding of marriage, of sexuality, and of how God intended image bearers to come into existence, then we should all across denominations be able to hold hands and be united on this issue and say, yeah, this doesn't line up with the way God designed things. And one of the points that I make in the book is I, you know, I go to the scriptures where Jesus is in the temple and he, and he turns over the tables and he, and he says to the people, stop turning my father's temple into a marketplace. And the temple was for a very specific purpose. It's for prayer. It's for worship. It's for sacrifice. It's, it's not to be a marketplace. And I make the point that Jesus, of course, is the new temple because it's in that dialogue. He talks about, oh, yeah, you know, if you tear this temple down in three days, I will, you know, rebuild it. And they're like, how is that possible? This has taken so many years for it to be built. But he meant himself. But we are also temples of the Holy Spirit. Paul talks about this. And so if you think about that, stop making my father's temple into a marketplace. That's what IVF does. It takes the temple of the Holy Spirit, the individual who is an image bearer, and makes them into a commodity, manufactures a human person. So instead of a husband and wife receiving new life as a fruit of their sexual intimacy, um, now they are forcing into existence another individual, and not even at their own hands, but the hands of someone who's not part of their covenantal relationship of a marriage. And so... If you look at IVF, it is really about commodity, objectification, using of a human person. Even in a marriage, as much as a couple that have fertility um, may easily conceive a child, it still wouldn't be accurate for them to say if they know the wife is at a fertile stage in, in, in her cycle. It's not accurate for them to say, let's go make a baby. Because even when a couple has sex, there is no guarantee even if they're fertile, that they will conceive in that moment or that they'll conceive that month. There's no guarantee which sperm will fertilize the egg, which egg has ovulated. There is still a receptivity in the couple's disposition when they engage in sex, even, even the time that conception could occur. You know, one of the points I make in my book, if you have a couple who has sex every day for five days and the woman ovulates on Thursday, which act of sex is the one that conceives the new life? Is it sperm from Monday? Is it sperm from Thursday? You know, we don't know. There, there is a allowing things to just unfold. But IVF is about give me as many eggs as possible. Give me as many sperms as possible. And then sometimes they, there's a procedure called ICSI, I-C-S-I, where the scientists will actually take one sperm, one egg. They then become the, the individual determining 
who the offspring is and they inject the one sperm into that egg. So I think that the case can really be made across denominations that God designed sex to be the way for humans to come into existence, but still there is a receptivity and a receiving as opposed to a forcing. The other thing is God made sex necessary and IVF makes sex unnecessary. You don't need any sex at all for a baby from IVF to come into existence. The man masturbates, the woman has eggs retrieved, a scientist then puts the parts together in a lab, the baby might be temporarily frozen before being transferred to the mother's body. So all of that is about a separation and a division of human relationship and connection. And sex is all about a communion of persons bringing together in receptivity. So let's do what Douglas Murray calls steel manning the opposite position. So let's take somebody who's as pro-life as you and I, who is sincere in their Christian conviction, who wants a child but wants to, to the greatest extent possible, to remain ethical, wants to make one embryo, have it implanted right away to ensure that there is no freezing. So let's take let's take the most pro-life version of this that we possibly can. The sort of thing that, that people that are, are friends of you and I, uh, colleagues of you and I in the pro-life movement might be tempted to justify. Explain why, despite all of these measures being taken to ensure that, I wouldn't say commodification can be eliminated because commodification is inherent to the process, but reduced to the greatest extent possible. So what would your argument be to somebody like that? So I would ask that individual when the child, the one child that they have allowed the IVF clinic to create rather than many embryos, when that child comes into existence, at whose hand does the child begin with? And they would have to answer the scientist, you know, whatever the, the IVF clinic workers, whoever they are. But the answer would be not at the hand of the husband and wife. And the question then becomes, is there ever a case God has made for human children to come into existence outside of a relationship between the husband and wife? And I think they'd have a hard time answering that, but I'd be curious if you want to play devil's advocate, because rather than me just explaining, you, you know my style and anyone familiar with me knows my style is to be more ask questions, get an answer, ask another question. The reason I want the steel case is because what I find in a lot of discussions like this is people won't respond to your question. What they'll do is, so are, well, are you saying this is also wrong? Because we have now accepted so many different things especially in communities that prize children, rightly so, as you put it earlier in this conversation, have an order of desire. Uh, and especially in communities, I was just in, in Barry's Bay, where people have a lot of big families and where it's very difficult if you don't, right? People often forget that in communities that still have a healthy desire for, for children, the pain of infertility is exacerbated because A, it's more noticeable and B, this desire is actually present. So often when you start off with some of the questions that you've just been, been posing to me, people say, are you saying this is also wrong? Are you saying this is also wrong? And what they'll do is basically try to find out what your views on most of the reproductive health industry actually is. And most of those answers would be distinctly unsatisfactory to most people. Which is why I, I think it's very important to start with the essentials of like, before we can have a discussion, we have to define our terms, right? What was sex created for? What did God intend it for? And rather than trying to find ways to justify what we want to do to get to a, a desired good, to find out if there are actually any legitimate, licit, moral means to get there, 
Because I, I, I do think a lot of people don't accept the fact that there are objective goods that we cannot get because there simply are no moral means for us to acquire them. And that this involves, this, this essentially involves putting things in the hand uh, of providence uh, and prayerfully asking for something we may not be given. It is very difficult, but you really capture it. Sometimes there isn't a moral solution to a real problem or suffering that someone faces. Now, sometimes there are, we can certainly pursue them. And that's one of the things I also highlight in my book, because all too often the medical community will jump to IVF for a patient struggling with infertility and say, well, this is what you need to do. And I wanted to draw people's attention to what's called restorative reproductive medicine, where there are wonderful physicians and other scientists who have done a ton of research and practical um, application of their research, whereby they address the underlying medical condition to begin with in the woman or man, correct that, and then the couple can conceive naturally. So if um, a woman has blocked fallopian tubes, you can do surgery. If she has not, she's not ovulating, you can give her pharmaceuticals and then that would cause her to ovulate and so on and so forth. I think the key thing we need to help people realize when they say, but what if we narrow it down to this, this one embryo created with, you know, if, a, if it's a woman talking, just my husband's sperm, we, we tell them not to do ICSI. I, you know, we tell them not to pick the one sperm and the one egg, you know, we, we just, you know, give one egg and then a bunch of sperm and, and then, and then we see what happens. The problem with that is that the human person is not coming into existence as a fruit of sexual intimacy between husband and wife, a husband and wife. That individual is still being manufactured at the hands of a third party. We're also placing that individual in jeopardy by virtue of bringing them into existence outside of the womb. Even if we try to tra- you know, transfer them right away, we, we don't use a freezer, there is still risk and harm we're putting a new human being into in an environment that's very dangerous for that human being. Another thing we need to consider is that when you have sex, you will only, if you conceive at all, you will only ever conceive offspring with your spouse. The moment you basically contract life-making out to a third party, which is what IVF does, even if you're only making one embryo, the moment you contract that out, you invite risk that naturally comes with human error that could cause you to create a human being that wouldn't naturally come into existence in the marriage bed. And by that, I mean, there have been cases where labs have taken the sperm from the wrong patient and fertilize the egg from the, another patient. And therefore they create a child and implant it into the, the right woman. But only when the child grows up with some features that are not at all like the mother and father that they realize, oh my gosh, we gave the wrong sperm. This actually isn't fully your genetic child. That can't happen with sex, but that can happen in a lab. Even when we take all the precautions, even when we're super careful. So so there's there's consequences that can come even from narrowing the parameters. But most fundamentally, we are enlisting a third party that is not part of the covenant of marriage to create a human being through manufacturing as opposed to the couple receiving that, that life through sex. And then the other point, I, I said it earlier, but just to reemphasize it, is sex is about a communion of persons. The husband and wife have to come together for life to be created. Once life comes into existence, that life naturally is with the mother, is never alone. That embryo, you know, one of the points I make in my book 
I was thinking of writing historically. I said this when I used to work at CCBR that I should write a book one day called I Got Pregnant Doing the Dishes. And it would be a title that would bait people to want to read it. But the reason is when a couple has sex, they don't necessarily instantly conceive. There might not be an egg ready in the woman's body. The sperm's going to live for 24 hours. The husband goes off to work. The woman starts doing dishes. And unbeknownst to her, her body releases an egg. And because sperm are still in her body, at that moment, fertilization happens. And oh, she got pregnant doing the dishes. But my my point is that when the offspring comes into existence, we're still maintaining a communion of persons. First, you have the communion of persons of the husband and wife. They are united. They are together. Now you have the communion persons of the mother and child. The child is beneath the mother's heart. There isn't separation and division. With IVF, even if you just use a husband and wife's sperm and egg, that you just make one. And by the way, I think it would be difficult to find an IVF lab willing to do that. But setting all of that aside, even if you could, you have the exact opposite of sexual intimacy and fertilization or conception in the woman's body. In the case of IVF, everything is divided and separated. Although you could conceive by using a perforated condom and a couple having sex, or not conceive, sorry, but create a baby by IVF, by a couple having sex with a perforated condom and the man bringing the semen that is collected to the lab for IVF to occur. The vast majority of cases, sex doesn't occur. The husband goes and masturbates. Then he provides his sample to the lab. Even by collecting the semen in a sexual act, it still would be problematic because he's collecting it to give it away from his wife. So again, there's this separation, there's this division where not, we don't have community persons. Instead of giving his gift of life, he's now taking it away, giving it to a lab. The wife is separated by having her eggs retrieved. The husband could be there, but he doesn't have to be. And then the baby begins life in a Petri dish in glass at the hands of a stranger not in a relationship with the closest connection they have, which is to their mother. So the basic standard I would say is when we face infertility, what can we do to address the problem that aids the sexual act in achieving its end of new life that God ordained to occur, but making sure we don't ever replace the sexual act. And the problem with IVF is it literally replaces the sexual act. Sex is not necessary for life to come to be with someone conceived naturally. Sex is necessary for life to come to be. Now, I want to backtrack a little bit to something you said in that answer, because before I, I you know, did any sort of research into the broad Christian tradition on natural law and our shared collective heritage on what that means for how we live as, as humans, how we're designed, how God designed marriage, how God designed sex and all those things. The argument that it had persuaded me that IVF was wrong before that is simply that, as you pointed out briefly, there's really no way of doing it, even if you're only making one that does not place the child at risk, period. So even if you're simply adhering to the pro-life ethic, an embryo that's created in a Petri dish has a higher chance of dying than a child created in his, in, in his or her mother's womb. Could you kind of, you, you mentioned that briefly, delineate that, because I think your whole book is necessary for myself, I, I could be persuaded on that argument alone, just as somebody who's pro-life, because I don't believe we ever have the right to risk the life of a child needlessly. Yeah, if you think about when when do we take preborn children out of their mother's bodies? Well, the most obvious time is birth, when they naturally come out on their own. The next time we take them out is when their life is in danger or the mom's life is in danger and we know we can keep them alive 
in an incubator. And so that's why we have neonatal intensive care units. And we have babies that are, you know, might be 30 weeks old, they could be 24 weeks old, and they're no longer in their mother's body, because they're now we're we're trying to keep them alive. They are a child who is already in existence, whose ability to continue it to exist is in jeopardy. And therefore, we respond by, by doing that which is necessary. With IVF, the child is not yet in existence. And what we're doing is making the child come into existence in an environment that is inherently unsafe or dangerous for that child. So instead of the child beginning in the mom's body, by beginning in the lab, there is risk that the child uh, could die. I mean, we're talking about very small body parts. The sperm and the egg are, are, are being viewed under a microscope. They are, they are, you know, the pipettes and all the different things involved, all of this is at a minuscule level. There is risk that the embryo could be harmed or killed in the process of bringing the sperm and egg together, of watching the first few stages of cell division before a transfer attempt occurs, when the transfer attempt occurs. If someone were to freeze the child, there's there's also not a guarantee that thawing is going to be successful. It's one of the things I talk about in my book. Um, but even if someone doesn't go the route of, of freezing and thawing, if they're just making a baby outside the mother's body, that is inherently dangerous for the child. And we're putting someone in jeopardy who doesn't yet exist through a method of bringing them into existence that is inherently unsafe, as opposed to that baby we rescue. And we're like, okay, you need your mom's body, but at 24 weeks, we're going to put you in an incubator because it's no longer um, sustainable for you to continue to live in your mom's body. And we're going to try to keep you alive over here. But in the other case, baby doesn't yet exist. And we're harming the baby in that very process. Now, I just want to make it clear for listeners that the, the discussion we've been having for the last uh, 10, 15 minutes or so basically precludes freezing, thawing, like pro-life, pro-lifers who are, are very ethical and very thoughtful, folks like Dr. Callum Miller, et cetera, would already agree that all of that is wrong. We're talking about a very narrow set of circumstances that very rarely happens. And so we're just, we're trying to, we're trying to give the most latitude to, to those who are doing this in terms of, is this ever ethical at all? But most pro-lifers would agree that the process of IVF in most circumstances does treat human life extremely callously because it is fundamentally manufacturing, commodifying its babies as a product being purchased by their parents as opposed to children being conceived. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I appreciate you, you making that clarification again for the, for the listener who's like, but what about, what about, what about this very narrow, narrow case is we, it, another point to consider is we talk about why even that super narrow case is wrong is to realize, and I, I address this in my book, a human person is a gift, not a right. We actually don't have a right to children. And that's really hard when you really want a baby. And that's why one of the analogies I make at the start of my book to really convey this whole point is to really wanting a spouse. I talk about the crisis in China right now, where because of decades of a one child policy and a culture that has preferred male children to female children, huge numbers, millions upon millions of female infanticide and abortion for decades has resulted in a, a gender imbalance so that you have some reports say 34 million more men than women in China. Now, you and I know as Canadians that Canada's population is about that. You know, they say 35 to 40 million. So just for the listeners to imagine for a moment, like 
what if every single person in Canada was male? That is the sheer large number of human beings we're talking about when realizing the male-female imbalance in China. So why do I bring this up? I bring it up to make the point that there are a whole bunch of men in China that aren't going to get married, who want to get married because they can't find a wife. And one of the things I bring into my book is the research I did on the fact that it is tragic to read the stories and watch the documentaries of men that long to have a companion, but can't seem to find a wife. And then what you see is some of them who so badly long to have a wife actually go down the route of human trafficking and they get involved in the buying and selling of, of women and, and forcing them to be their spouses. And I use this to make the point as good as it is to desire a life companion. We actually can't claim a right to a spouse. I do not have a right to a husband. You do not have a right to a wife. We can hope if we desire that type of relationship, that that is God's plan for us and that life unfolds so that we meet our beloved. In my case, I did, but not until I was 40 and wasn't even sure at that point whether I ever would get married as much as I, I wanted to. So so you can desire that, but I, I can't claim that I had a right to get married to my husband. It is a gift that he came into my life and that he freely chose to want to marry me and so forth. And so in the same way, children are a gift. As it's wrong to human traffic someone to get a spouse, it's wrong to manufacture someone through IVF to get a child. Because a child like a spouse is a gift who is a subject, not an object to be responded to in a way that shows we have a right to someone that we don't actually have a right to. On a personal note, before I, I go to my next question, do you find it more difficult to talk to this now that you do have what you want? Because I used to get presentations on this, on on, on 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 chastity, on all these kinds of things. And it was easier for me because I didn't get married till I was 27. So it was pretty easy to tell a whole group full of people that they needed to be adhering to a standard of chastity that applied to myself as well. It's easier now to, to feel like it's easy for me to say, right? Like I'm happily married. I have two, you know, beautiful kids and one and one on the way oh yay congrats oh sorry i forgot to tell you before so now everybody else in the podcast is finding out too but like it, it i do find it's easy for people to look at my family picture now right with my lovely wife and my beautiful kids and say it's easy for you to go and tell people this because you now have what you want and i found i found it was easier to talk about these things when i didn't do you find the same thing when you're working on this project so I really thought long and hard about that wading into this because um, not only was I blessed to get married, but then I was blessed to get pregnant right away, which at 40 is, is really unlikely. That's usually why a lot of people pursue IVF because when they try to get pregnant at 40, they can't. Having said that, I also went through not waiting, not only waiting a long time before I got married, but my first pregnancy ended in miscarriage. And so we lost our first baby Lele. But then, yes, I got pregnant really fast right after that with Violet. And so when I did reflect on that, a couple things came to mind. The first is, yes, it does seem a little bit harder to talk about it because I've achieved, you know, the dream, so to speak. But at the same time, the fact that I went so long before getting married and then managed and then had a miscarriage, it's kind of like, well, I do know suffering and I do know want. And I know unfulfilled want, at least for a really long time. And yes, I have a happily ever after to my story that not everyone has right now. But two things with that. One, 
part of the advantage then that my story has is to give people hope it is possible. So someone facing infertility might not pursue IVF, but upon reading my book, they might go to a restorative reproductive medicine clinic and actually get pregnant naturally and be like, oh my goodness, we actually had a baby. And I intentionally interviewed a large number of my friends who I knew struggled with infertility and used their stories with their permission in the book in order to give people hope that this is possible. The second point though, which I do also address in the book is I realize not everyone's going to get the happily ever after that they thought. They can still have a happy, fulfilling life, but not the way that they envisioned it would be. And that's why I intentionally included stories of friends of mine who had infertility, tried to correct the problem, weren't able to do so, and have never had children. And yet their life is fulfilling. And, and the, the, the story that touched me the most is my, the story of my friend Bethany. It's not her real name, but the name I've used for the book. And she and her husband never conceived. They're now beyond the years of conceiving. They tried really hard, but she is a a Christian uh, ministry leader. She travels the world and she has an incredible impact and countless spiritual children. And she herself talks about that. And she talked about the journey she went on wanting children to realizing, okay, life isn't unfolding as I thought, but I can still actually be really fulfilled and really happy and experience spiritual maternity. And so I I, I share that in the book. And so my story, the personal aspect will help some, but there are others who who might say, ah, that doesn't work for me. And that's exactly why I've included the stories of people like Bethany. That's very interesting because I do find as a guy, it's fundamentally different for me because obviously motherhood is so much it's so distinct from fatherhood. It's one of the reasons we don't agree with same-sex marriage because women need, like, like all children need a mother and a father. We bring a totally different set of things to the table, if you will. But, you know, I just felt our third child kick for the first time last week. But Shermaine's been kind of communing with our baby for months now, right? Like, like the relationship starts way earlier. The connection is way more natural and instinctive. And so I, I do find that, like, it's such a different experience for a guy. You can desire children, but in a different way. And it's also not as part as much a part of our identity, I don't think, as motherhood as part of uh, the female identity, especially, again, in communities that value children. And so, which, which, again, so much of this comes from a good desire, which is one of the reasons this discussion is so difficult. And Dr. Karen Swallow-Pryor has written very beautifully about this, where where she she lost she lost a bunch uh, quite a few babies i believe to very early miscarriages and she calls them whispers at the edge of her consciousness because she never actually met any of them and now she's a, a very significant writer and and is a blessing to many many people even though she didn't have her own biological children so to those who are listening and are bridling at this whole conversation and are thinking you're t- these two people are talking about me they don't know me my situation is different or even how, how dare they discuss something so personal and painful to me when they don't understand. What would you say to them to persuade them to give this book a try? Because I think that your book is written for people like that as well. And and is to the, to the best that I can understand it in reading the book, and I went through your book very carefully, I think that, that people could work their way through the book and actually have a lot of those fears and a lot of even maybe the, the bitter pushback that's instinctive to this disappear or dissipate as the book goes on. I think what I I would say to those people is I might be the author, but I am really the deliverer 
of the message of people who are experiencing what you've ex- what you are experiencing. The the stories that I've included, the stories that aren't known to the public. So I I didn't go get a famous person's story of infertility and I mean, yes, I included some of those in the book, but the, the ones that I'm thinking of are stories that you will never read anywhere else. They are people like you that are in my social circle. And I approached them and I said, look, you've been open with me. Would you be open to me interviewing you so that your story in some way could help someone else in shoes like yours that aren't exactly like mine? And so I would say to those individuals, grab the book to read those people's stories and to wrestle what you're wrestling with, they may have wrestled with as well. You know, one um, woman whose story I include in there talks about how when she faced infertility, she was frustrated with God because she saw unplanned pregnancies happening and abortions happening. And she thought, God, like, what are you doing up there? You're giving babies to people who don't want them and are actually killing them. Hello, over here, here I am. I've done everything right, you know, before getting married, really trying to make sure I was in a healthy state. And then once I got married, you know, monitoring my fertility and being open to life and like, whoa, why aren't you blessing me with a baby? And and she was very candid that that was a, a real frustrating experience for her. Another friend whose story I include talks about how she always was uncomfortable. They actually, she and her husband conceived a child after a year, but then went years before they had a second child. So this is often called secondary infertility. And she was from a community that like you've mentioned, it's natural to have lots of children. And she talks about being uncomfortable just or how she was uncomfortable going to social settings where she knew people would expect based on the timeline she'd been married, that they should have more than one child and that she just had one child to show for herself. That, that was hard for her. That was heartbreaking for her. Um, so I would say, give the book a chance to read those stories. I can even, I, I would even say, if you actually just want to read a section of the book, I would read chapter one, which is the stories of people right out of the gate, the stories of people who are facing the suffering that you're facing. And then I would read uh, chapter 12, which goes back to the stories of those people. So the beginning starts with that they faced infertility and chapter 12 is how they responded to it. And some successfully conceived, others didn't. And so start with chapter one and jump to chapter 12. As a final question, because we obviously we want, we want people to buy the book, so we're not going to go through every single chapter. But, but as a final question, which, which kind of comes off of the last thing I just asked you, is, is how not to talk about this. Because I find that these discussions are, are packed with landmines that those not experiencing the pain of people going through infertility can't see. I know like this is very much true with people who have experienced miscarriage, right? So often as a way of cheering them up, so to speak, people say like, well, at least, you know, you can get pregnant if they have another child, for example, as if, you know, that a new baby replaces the one that they've lost. And, and sometimes we just have to recognize that there's nothing that you can say, like, you know, when a loved one dies, there's almost nothing that you can say, right? That, that, that loss is that loss. And there are so many things in life that have to be endured. Pain can't be mitigated. It just has to be endured. Um, and, but there, there's so many ways that this can be discussed that is needlessly insensitive. And I, I think even in communities where having big families is welcomed or even the norm, I think people have to be very careful with how they approach somebody who a is not having a baby or just has one or two and not make false assumptions about, you know, the use of contraception, etc. because these things might be going on. So, 
Can you kind of give a few, uh, a few, like, this is one of the, the things I think that is best about your apologetics books is that you're very good at providing practical tips for how to discuss these things. How can people broach these conversations without ending up being accidentally insensitive and hurtful? I think the first thing is to not approach people and expect them to tell you why they don't have children. Unless they have come to you and said, we don't want children. The world is a terrible, evil place, and we do not want to bring a child into a world. I think if they are volunteering that information, you have a right to respond by saying, hold on a second, where there's life, there's hope. God wants us to bring good, goodness into the world. But, or, or correspondingly, or, or, or differently, if, if they were to say, you know, can you pray for us? We want to have children. We see how messed up the world is, and we believe new life is needed to make this world better. But can you pray for us? Because we're having a hard time conceiving. Okay, then again, they're volunteering information, then you can respond. But if if someone is not said anything, to go up to them and say, when are you having kids? Why don't you have children? You're not being close to having children, are you? Like all of that is entirely inappropriate. We're not in that marriage and, and we don't have a right to make those inquiries. That's the first thing. When the conversation comes up, because someone's, if they were to say, hey, can you pray for us? We're having a hard time conceiving. So we're actually having an IVF treatment done next week. <laughs> okay. Now they have opened the door, you know, and you could say, wow, okay. How long have you been, been thinking about this, facing this, you know, and then you slowly work your way into the conversation in which you could say, you know, I've, you know, if someone has read my book, for example, I've, I've been reading about IVF and there are some things that sometimes the, 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 the system of IVF doesn't, doesn't reveal to people or would you be open to me sharing with you some of the things that I've shared? And they might say, well, well, what do you mean? And then you could maybe start with the easy stuff. Like, well, you know, sometimes they make a whole bunch of embryos and then they kill some just to implant others. Oh, well, we're not going to do that. You know, but whatever the case is, you gradually work your way into the conversation. Um, and, and I think when you're having those conversations, even if it's not about IVF, but it's just about infertility, the thing to really be attuned to is, is this person wanting from me sympathy and empathy where I say, wow, that is really hard. I am so sorry. I will pray for you. Or are they wanting an intellectual discussion with me? Wow. Okay. Let's, let's talk this through. Like, are you aware of alternatives to IVF? Are you aware of this about IVF? Whatever the case may be. So to summarize everything I've just said, the first is don't make statements about people's situation you have no clue about. Or assumptions. Or assumptions. Correct. The second thing is when they volunteer information, then respond accordingly. And the third is in your response, really be aware as to whether the person in that moment is so broken and hurting that they just need you to express this must really be painful or whether they're conveying that they really are wanting to figure out the best path and they welcome your insights. And then you can share the type of information that the whole, you know, the book is written for. Final question then is where can people find this book? Conceived by Science, Thinking Carefully and Compassionately About Infertility and IVF, is available on Amazon and all the marketplaces. If people want the direct link just by hopping onto my website, which is loveunleasheslife.com, clicking on books, the first book up there is my IVF book to Amazon. So loveunleasheslife.com, or just go to Amazon and type in Conceived by Science, Stephanie Gray Connors, and it will come up. Thanks for joining us, Steph. Thank you, Jonathan. 
Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Stephanie Gray Connors. Thank you so much for joining the show this week. If you want to check out past episodes, please head on over to lifesightnews.com. You can click on the podcast tab and then you can subscribe to future shows or check out past shows. We're on every week at on Wednesdays. And again, thank you so much for your time this week. We hope you'll join us again next week.